reading from the New Testament is taken from the book of Galatians. It is the second half of chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 and working to the end of the chapter. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For, certain, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. This is the word of the Lord. To recap what we have looked at to get here, the false teachers that are moving among the churches in Galatia have effectively put forward three propositions that this epistle refutes. What they have put forward is this. One, there are multiple Gospels. The false teachers were very familiar with a marketplace of ideas where philosophers of every stripe were on different corners and giving their message, and the false teachers were very comfortable saying, now, well, you need to understand there are multiple Gospels, And the Jerusalem apostles, they have their gospel, but we have a gospel, and our gospel is better. We are in a marketplace of ideas, a religious plurality, and that's their second point. Our message is better. We we are are, are 25% less expensive and... Our product is 50% better. Thirdly, the Apostle Paul, well, you know that he's of the school of Jerusalem. 
He's with the apostles of Jerusalem, and of course, the reason why he says what he says is because he's on their team. Um, He is just a fanboy for them. We are better. You should listen to us. Well, the first two propositions, Paul has already refuted the Spirit speaking through the Apostle in these very firm terms. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed." Uh, is there another gospel? Uh, Apparently the answer is no, and if you receive the answer as yes, you are in danger of anathema, which is literally coming under the greatest curse of God. You are cast off into hellfire. So Paul is not what you would call very inclusive concerning the idea of an open marketplace of religious ideas. According to the Apostle, who speaks for Christ, there is no other gospel, there is one gospel, and your entire eternity is absolutely dependent upon you having the right gospel. Don't look for a Walmart special, don't look for a blue light gospel special at Kmart, there is only one gospel, and it's from God and your eternity absolutely rides on it. And having said that in the first chapter, he then began to refute the third uh, proposition they made, which was Paul is basically just a fanboy of the apostles. This is a man's gospel, and men have convinced Paul that that's the team he should play on. That's all that's going on. Well, as we began to work through Galatians, he began to speak to that. At verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul talks about his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles, and he basically says, I barely know them. Then after three years, that is three years after his conversion, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God I do not lie. And afterwards I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So Paul feels the need to call an oath before the very face of God and say, Look, I honestly don't know him well. Uh, I went up three years after my conversion. I met Peter for a little while. I, I met James just a little Honestly, didn't have a lot to do with them. And then in chapter 2, he says, Then after 14 years, that is 14 years after his conversion, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me. So uh, he's, he's giving his touch points when he meets the apostles. 
And honestly, it's twice in 14 years, and it's not that significant. So if you honestly think I'm just a representative of men, well, it would be very hard for me to do that. I barely know them. And if I am such a fanboy of them, how is it that in a very public way, Peter and I could have a fairly public row? This is Paul's final word to this, where he emphasizes that even though the apostles are Christ's messengers, they themselves are inherently human. They speak the perfect word of God, but they don't live it perfectly. And there was a point where Peter honestly wasn't working too well at what he should be doing, and Paul called him on the carpet and very publicly, which in fact the New Testament says to do. The New Testament says very clearly, if you have an elder who is sinning, that elder needs to be called out publicly. Well, Paul does that, and he says, honestly, if I'm a fanboy, how could I do that? Which is really, really ironic. Because 2,000 years later, the liberal religion has flipped this on its head. The false teacher said, now Paul's just a fanboy of of Peter and James. The reason why he talks the way he does is that's how they talk. But 2,000 years later, what I was taught in a liberal seminary is, now you know that your Christian religion is actually a synthesis of two religions that were actually fighting one another, and then sometime in the second century they were actually glued together. But in the first century, you had Peter and James... And they taught that to be saved, you had to follow the Jewish law. And Paul taught that you were saved by grace. And these two schools of thought fought one another. And they they were terribly at odds. And uh, it wasn't until the second century where the Christians thought, you know, we need to tie this together so it makes some sense. And so you get a synthesis of the two religions. The only problem with what I just described is it's totally made up. It is made up whole cloth. There is literally not a shred of evidence that anything I just said to you ever, ever happened. And if it did happen, then the false teachers would not be saying, now Paul and Peter, I mean, they're lost up. That's, you know. So 2,000 years later, if you go to a liberal seminary, you will have their heresy replaced with another heresy. Generally speaking, the apostles of Jesus Christ, because they are speaking from Christ, they do say the same thing, because they're speaking Christ's message. But there was a moment where Paul did call Peter on the carpet, and as we look at this passage, there are really eight points that we need to look at, but the first one we need to look at, we need to come by way of a question. We have already seen that this epistle is a contrast between the covenant of works, which is a much better name for it than the covenant of life, which you can use either one you want, and the covenant of grace. We looked at chapter 3, and we saw Paul very clearly say Now, did the Spirit come among you and work miracles among you because you kept the law, or did He come among you because you believed in the Son of God? 
And that is the very essence of this epistle. That's what Paul is going to do. He's going to make an amazing distinction between a covenant based around works and a covenant based around faith. But as we enter into this spot where Paul is transitioning from, you know, kind of answering the false teachers and then going into his doctrinal part, he calls Peter on the carpet over what Peter is doing, which is works. Paul said, now, when when Peter came to Antioch, I really had to oppose him to his face because he was in the wrong, because he was doing something wrong. But now this letter is a contrast between works and faith. So what gives? Well, the answer is uh, the new covenant in Jesus Christ absolutely has a, a place for works, but it's not a place where your salvation is based upon them. Rather, it's a matter of hypocrisy. Uh, the issue wasn't whether Peter and James and Barnabas were reconciled to God. They were. But because they were, there is a natural life that comes with the life of God. Just like if you are a fish, you naturally swim. If you are a bird, you naturally fly. If you are spiritually made alive, you naturally walk in righteousness. And if you don't, the scriptures call that hypocrisy. And Paul uses the term here twice. They were hypocritical. I called them out on their hypocrisy. Nobody likes a hypocrite. Even a hypocrite doesn't like a hypocrite. Think about the most hypocritical person you know and then ask them, do you like hypocrites? And if they're honest, they'll tell you, no, I can't stand a hypocrite. In one of C.S. Lewis's works, and I've read so many of them, I don't remember which one, but in one of them, he talks about how arrogant people hate arrogance. If you get somebody who is really arrogant and they meet somebody who's really arrogant, they will hate them because people hate arrogancy, even if they have it themselves. Well, hypocrisy is kind of that way too. I don't think there's a single person in here who would say, now there's just nothing I like better in people than hypocrisy. I mean, that just really, really makes me happy. Hypocrisy is ugly. Hypocrisy is... uh, We respond to it, even if we're in it, we respond to it in a very negative way. It's just disgusting. And Paul is not telling Peter, now, you've lost your salvation, you know, you're you're doing wrong works. He's saying, you are a hypocrite. The term means play-acting. If you are play-acting, you are acting in a way that you aren't. And that is exactly what Peter and James and Barnabas were doing. 
And God hates hypocrisy more than you do. How many times did our Lord sling out the phrase, you hypocrite, in the Gospels? And there is no place where he does that where that seems positive. (laughs) You hypocrite. It is a slam from the very Son of God. It is obvious that Jesus Christ is absolutely disgusted with hypocrisy. It is his chief insult. Honestly, you can kind of hear the Son of God's disgust in the term even more than you brood of vipers. God hates hypocrisy more than anyone else. And here, his children, his converted children, are acting in hypocrisy. And the Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, will tell us, now you know that judgment begins at the house of God. God doesn't let his children live in hypocrisy. In fact... If you find that God lets you do that, if you find that the hand of providence lets you get away with being a hypocrite and God does not trouble you and trip you up and knock you down, uh, the odds are you're not one of God's people. Because God hates hypocrisy to his very heart, and if you are a converted person and you are a hypocrite, God's going to slap you. And at this point, that's what God is doing through Paul to Peter. He is calling him out because he is a hypocrite. You see, the place for good works in the New Covenant is not merit. No good work that you will ever do, or even the entire body of every good work that you do, under any circumstances whatsoever, will ever be good enough to win God's favor, and that's not the way Paul is talking here. He is talking about sincerity. He's talking about integrity, and that's very different. This is the opposite of hypocrisy. Now, before I go into this being a virtue, in our own modern culture, sincerity has been raised to kind of be the ultimate virtue. So that unbelievers really think that the the highest value that a person can have is if they are sincere. Well, sincerity is not the be-all and end-all of virtues. You can be sincerely wrong. You can be, uh, you can sincerely hate someone. So it's not the ultimate virtue, but it is a virtue. Sincerity is when you walk in accordance with what you really are, which means actually if you're an unconverted sinner, it is kind of sincere for you to walk in sin, which is not a good thing. But if you are a believer, the place for good works is rooted in this sincerity. And we have already seen Paul talk about that when he wrote to Timothy, but it is worth hearing it again and again and again When Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, uh, these utterly important words are said, and this is worth memorization. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, 
for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to the law, no, he started talking about the law, but if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So Paul writing to Timothy says, you know, the law condemns all these evil behaviors just the way the gospel does, but the law is inherently different than the gospel. There is a natural life that the gospel will give life to, and that natural life will look like what God said in the law. If you find yourself ever saying, now, you know, God on Mount Sinai, he took his people and he gave them an evil law that he would later have to get rid of because, you know, it was evil and it was from his hand. You have gone to a very, very dark place. Everything that the law says is good is good, and everything the law says is bad is bad. But for you, on Judgment Day, God is not going to look at you and measure how well you kept this law, and you ought to thank God profusely. But it's still goodness. And you are a child of God. You have his family resemblance, you have his spirit in you, and he's going to emphasize the spirit when we get to chapter 3, and he's going to emphasize the spirit like nobody's business when we get to chapter 5 and 6. The Holy Spirit is among you, you have been made alive, you are a son and daughter of God. For you, righteousness is sincerity. When you walk and talk and live like God... That's what you do because that's who you are. And when you don't, it is hypocrisy. And sincerity in the faith does not bring about believers pulling away from unbelievers and saying, pulling away from believers and saying, now there is a certain segment of us believers that are better than you. Uh, you are believers, but we have to go over here because we're the better believers. Rather, sincerity in the gospel produces Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the oil poured on Aaron's head. It's like the, the blessing that comes from Mount Hermon and all the crops that are grown there. And in fact, eternal life tends to develop when brothers dwell together in unity. That is what sincerity of the gospel will produce, and Barnabas, James, and Peter were not walking in sincerity. They were walking in hypocrisy, and that was not good. Paul, at this point, goes on to launch into his doctrinal section, and in verse 15 and 16 he attacks the idea that you can be born into a good bloodline. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. None. If anyone had a right to say, now I was born with an in, it would have been the physical children of Abraham, born into the visible covenant, raised with all the sacraments of God's law taking place all the time, hearing the word of God because they are physically in the covenant. If anyone had a right to say, now, I'm just a little better than you, it would have been those who were outwardly Jewish, like Peter was, like Paul was. But these verses clearly say there is no one born into this world, not a one who doesn't have the same sin problem and has only the same answer for it, which is faith in Jesus Christ. I was not born Jewish, but from the the very earliest of my memories, I remember being taught, you know, you're part of this family, and you're just a little better. There are people in the world who are really nasty people, but that's not you. You were born into this household, and we're just inherently a little better people. And so you're going to be a better person because you're part of this family. It was rather hard to unlearn that. There was a certain addiction to that, thinking that your bloodline gave you an end with God and man. But the truth is, every little child that is born is both a beautiful gift of God and a viper in diapers. There is not a person born into the world at all in any condition, in any religion, in any place that doesn't need Jesus Christ and faith in him. No one has an end with God and no one has been born better than anyone else. If you come from a a really rotten family, that should give you hope. If you come from a family that in the eyes of the world is very high, that should bring you a certain humility. In the eyes of God, no one is born with an end. Jesus is required. And Jesus didn't come into this world and die to give you a pass for sinning or make you better at it. He came into the world to deliver you from it and not just its consequences. Paul goes on in verse 17, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. As we were talking in Sunday school this morning, uh, as as Anjuko brought up, there are a number of people out there that make the mental jump and say, you know, Jesus saves me from the consequences of my sins, and I'm a born-again person. Therefore, it kind of doesn't matter what I do. And in fact, Jesus basically has given me fire insurance. Jesus came so that I could be a better sinner. 
And Paul responds to that with an absolutely not, you are totally getting this wrong, and the entirety of the New Testament says that is the wrong way to look at this. If we go to another apostle's writing, if we go to John's writing in 1 John chapter 1, he deals with the same sort of idea and he says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the Apostle John says, if you are still really wrapped up in sin uh, and you're walking in darkness, you can say all you want, but it's a lie. It's not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, which is exactly what these men were not doing. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from what? John goes on to say, cleanses us from all sin, He doesn't just say cleanses us from its consequences, though that is definitely a part of it. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin if we are walking in the light and having fellowship with Christ. It is a one-for-one correspondence. Again, going back to Sunday school, uh, Aaron brought up the concept of sanctification, and quite frankly, saved people can't be separated from it. If you are a saved person, the blood of Jesus Christ is going to wash you. It is going to make you uncomfortable with sin. It is going to make you feel awkward when you sin. It is going to wash it away. It's going to take away all the consequences, but it's going to take away the sin too, bit by bit. And so Paul in verse 17 uh, preempts the question, now Paul Are you saying that Jesus makes sin irrelevant? And he says, certainly not, because it doesn't. In fact, really, Paul will go on to say, the only thing that promotes sin is if I rebuild this false doctrine of merit that the false teachers have and that the current Jewish nation has, If I do that, if I rebuild that, then I'll be promoting sin, but the grace of God doesn't do that. Verse 18 is awkwardly phrased in most English translations. It reads, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, what is it that Paul has destroyed? Well, he has destroyed the false doctrine that the covenant of works will save you by your efforts. And he's going to go on to destroy it again and again and again as we go through the chapters. The outward Israel, the visible nation of God, had pretty much embraced that in tandem. We will be saved by God because we're born just a little better and we will keep the law and God will go, wow, you did a great job, and we will go into glory. The Christian faith has absolutely knocked that down. It has laid it asunder. 
And Paul says the false teachers are building it back up, and if that happens, quote, then I make myself a transgressor. That's promotion of sin, right? I mean, transgression is sin. So how does that work? Well, there are really three ways that's working. One is it makes you a transgressor against God's will. Because the will of God in Jesus Christ is to save people by grace, And so you're building up the covenant of works, which is actually not God's will for you to do. So in the very act of re-embracing it, you are bringing the wrath of God down upon you because God doesn't want you to do that. Secondly, though, you become a transgressor legally. Because if you want to be judged by God on the basis of your works, God will do that. And on Judgment Day, you will be absolutely condemned, you will be shown to be a sinner, and you will be shown to be a sinner for the very thing you embraced. The law will blazonly show you to be a hellish product ready for hell. And then, ironically, the third way that this promotes transgression is there is nothing like, depending on the first covenant, there is nothing like walking in legalism to promote the actual practice of sin. Now, I know that that seems counterintuitive. But time and time again, if you look at the world and how things work, where you have religion that focuses on keeping the first covenant, obeying God's law for merit, there you find all kinds of sin and depravity produced by that. In the book of Romans, Paul expands out this idea, and he says, you know, I had no idea what coveting was. And then the law said to me, don't covet. And I said, what's coveting? And the law said, don't do it. And I said, sounds kind of interesting. I think this coveting thing is something I ought to look into. No, no, don't do it, says the law. Coveting. I wonder how I could benefit from that. It is the very nature of the sinful nature to be titillated by the law of God and everything God says not to do to respond with, I wonder how I can get away with that. So time and time again, where you find people who are focused on relating to God by merit, there you will find every sort of sin and depravity that is developed. If you are looking for some place where men are actually morally changed where the blood of Christ is literally wiping away sin from them, where they are growing in the grace of God, they are being sanctified, if you find any place like that, I will tell you one other thing you will find. You will find an emphasis on the second covenant, the covenant of faith and grace. Because counterintuitively... The message from God that you are a sinner, but I will love you anyway, and I will purchase you in Christ, it is that message that will cause you to want to grow in righteousness. So Paul says, is Christ promoting sin? Absolutely not. If I build back up the covenant of works, then we're going to have sin produced. And how can I do that, says Paul, seeing that to the law I've died? The very next verse in verse 19 reads, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. 
You see, with the destruction of that covenant, the destruction of the covenant of law, uh, we're dead to its dictates. The law says, I'm a sinner, and it does. If you hold the law up to me, I honestly will tell you, I will look like a devil. Um, if, if I'm not dead to the law, then I'm dead to God. Because it'll show me for what I am. And there's no reason for him to receive me. But in Jesus Christ, I have died to the law. That's why it's laid asunder. Uh, the law and its curse no longer apply to me. I am dead to this covenant. I am dead to the covenant of works. Uh, it's not going to touch me because it's going to touch Christ. Jesus Christ stands in the way of the law and I, and that's really good because he literally took a bullet. He has substituted for me. He has taken the law's curse. Christ lives to the law, and that's what death and the cross and burial was all about. That was actually for me, but I'm dead to all that because Jesus took it. So... I can't build this back up. I'm dead. Dead men don't build monuments. And uh, I am alive to God. Paul in verse 19 and 20 says, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. That is how he died to the law. It is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. That's how he lives. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The false teachers come into the church and they say, you know, if you want to really relate to God, you're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to earn it by your merit. And Paul says, why do you have to earn what you already have? You're dead to the law, you're dead to the world, but you're living to God already. And God has shown He loves you. He has shown He has grace for you. He has shown you that you are in fellowship with Him. Uh, the people who are talking to you are talking to your dead corpse because they are of the world and they're talking to you and you're dead to the world, you're dead to the law, uh, and you don't need anything that they're offering. I have done a number of funerals, and like I said this morning, um, none of the dead have ever talked back, and none of the dead have ever, ever come to me and said, I need something from you. The dead have always been extremely chill about stuff. They don't need anything from me, they're totally passive, they're good. Well, that is the way you are to the law and to the world because if you are in Jesus Christ, you are already in fellowship with God. He loved you. He gave Jesus Christ for you. The blood has been given for you. You don't need anything the world is selling. You are good with God. And if you don't relate to him this way, what are you doing? Well, Paul finishes off with, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came, came, comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. 
a religion of merit, whether it has the, the, the star and the moon, or whether it has a cross on it, a religion of merit that says, now by my effort and my, my free will and, and my desire to do good works, that's how I'll be saved. You have literally thrown God's grace back in his face. This passage defines grace. It literally does this, if you look at it. This passage literally defines grace by the act of God in sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Paul says, this is grace. And if you are going to live to God by the first covenant, the covenant of works, if you're going to seek merit on your own, you will lay aside the grace of God and the death of Jesus Christ will be in vain. The false teachers had a very flimsy and and unsupported doctrine that said, you know, Jesus Christ did die, and you know what that does? That shows us how much God loves us, and it kind of gives us a second chance to get back up and run. We were talking this morning about how long Adam and Eve in their perfect estate lasted in the garden. And it's really kind of impossible to know, but it reads like, here's paradise, I'll walk with you in the cool of the garden, everything's perfect, you will shepherd the world for me, and there's not a sin problem. And Adam and Eve go, what's that fruit over there? I mean, it happens instantaneously, because in man... There, there is no strength. If your good news is that God gives you a second chance, it's not going to last till this afternoon. Jesus Christ did not die to give you a second chance. Jesus Christ died to take the bullet of the law, to take away the law and all of its curse. Jesus Christ died to make you alive to put you under his blood, to bring you into fellowship with God. And if your religion teaches merit, it doesn't matter how many crosses you can see in the building, it doesn't matter how beautiful they make the cover of their Bibles, if your religion teaches merit, you have tossed away the grace of God. Because there is a place for merit in Christianity too, but it's not you. You will be saved by works. You'll be saved by the works of Jesus Christ, who will be substituted for you. But merit belongs to him. And Paul takes Peter to task, and he says, if you don't live out the righteousness of God because this has happened, you're a hypocrite. You should knock that off because we are the children of God's grace.